Welcome everyone to this new episode of Voice of Empire. I'm here with Tom and uh, with us we have a guest from South Australia, which was a former MIR student. Her name is Asha. Hi, Asha. Hi, Tom and Michael. Hello, guys. Now, Asha has a cool surname that I can't pronounce, so uh, I'm going to guess <laughs> Sriram. Is that how I say it? Yeah, Sriram, yeah. Close yeah. enough? Yeah. Close enough, yeah. Closer than most people, so. Close, closer than most people. Um, So, uh, Asha is currently working for, is it the Minister of... Minister of Energy and Mining. So his name is his name is a mouthful. Um, Dan Van Holtz Pelican. That's his name. So wow. <laughs> yeah, it's, we've got a lot of names on this podcast today. Yep, and yeah, funny story is that just as I was um doing my last day at my Melbourne job, and I used to work for the Energy Efficiency Council. So I was working there, and it was just like time the next like next Monday I would be joining this role and. The CEO of the company, we were doing like remote going away drinks. CEO was like, all right, Asha, I'm going to quiz you about the minister's name because, you know, you can't get that wrong. And yeah, he basically just went through with me repeating after him, like how to say it. So yeah, it's a mouthful. But yeah, so Dan is the Minister for Energy and Mining. He's um, been working as, you know, obviously in this position for four years and before that, he was, you know, minister for other things like I'm pretty sure infrastructure at some point. So he's gotten juggled, obviously, with, you know, the party. And now he's minister of energy and mining. And after this, you know, he could become treasurer, for example. Now, am I correct in uh, saying that he is indeed a member of the Liberal government? Um, correct. So yeah. there is a couple of things to unpack there. Um, it's a friendly well, Geordie's reference, by the way, just for yeah, anyone who didn't understand why I did that with my voice. Oh, <laughs> of course. So... Thing to note, and obviously, like I've been um, almost two months into the role, and um, yeah, just talking to everybody about all this stuff. There's two things to note about my role. One is that I am technically a public servant, so essentially, my job does not include me being political within my within within doing my job. But obviously, you know, when we get to what my job actually is and what my day to day is, I can tell you more. But at the moment, it's like you know, everyone that I talk to is like, this is one of this is as good as it gets. If you're going to be working for a minister, this is one of the good ministers to work for, because he's just really polite. He's really nice. He's very professional, and a lot of the work that I'm supporting in terms of you know doing you know messaging around the work that he's doing is all like transitioning to renewables, you know that kind of stuff. So South Australia is just really you know, leading globally, like I think right now, share of renewables is 60%. They've got a net zero by 2050 pledge, but, you know, they're going to be achieving that way sooner. And they also have a, you know, 500% renewables by 2030. So, you know, just in from that perspective, it's very, very pro-energy transition, pro-renewables, and not as much pro-fossil fuels as you would have the federal government, you know, that narrative so from that perspective it's really good space to be in because it's very pro energy transition and it's not really pro coal and stuff like that they seem very it seems very different from what you would expect from the liberal party Um, definitely definitely and that's the thing in that and this is something that i was actually talking to the minister about yesterday 
um, we have like a meeting once a week where we discuss social media stuff. And um, yeah, so basically COP26 is happening, as you know, and the Department for Energy and Mining, which is the actual department here, they've produced a few short videos featuring the Premier talking about like key highlights of what South Australia has achieved in terms of the energy transition. And, and you know, just we were just talking about sharing that, you know, on social media and stuff like that. And um, yeah, this whole thing came up about like, how do we do it in a way that, you know, represents the video for what it is, which is we're just talking about South Australia. We're not talking about Australia as a whole. Yeah. So there's this idea of separating the state narrative from the federal narrative, if that makes sense. And obviously yeah. at this point, you know, with a lot of issues, not just climate, it really comes down to what policies, you know, the premier or the state is, you know, pursuing. So from that perspective, it's it's a wildly different zone. And and I do understand that, you know, unless you actually work for that particular person or work in that office, you're probably not really in the loop. But yeah, so South Australia is actually, I think it's the only, I think, yeah, it's the only state, I mean, jurisdiction, I guess, in the world to have, you know, the kind of gigawatt scale that is it has of renewables. So from that perspective, it's really good. It does get a lot and of sunlight you, as well. Yeah. Like the, yeah. Yeah. And do you think the South Australia model can be brought also on a federal level? Oh, definitely. As, yeah, definitely. Yeah. That's that's one thing that I think you know South Australia is trying to show the world and also the country is that it is possible to make renewables work from an economic and climate perspective. Like for example, yeah, yeah. Got the home battery scheme and switch for solar, for example, where, you know, you get a home battery installed for, you know, because of the government subsidy, it's much less like significant amount of money that you invest. But essentially what you're doing is that home battery is going to last you like a couple decades and your electricity prices during summer are going to be like negative. So you're not really paying anything. Mm -hmm. And the excess solar power that you get, that you generate, you store that in the battery and you use it during nighttime when power prices usually go up. So essentially it's incentivizing people to do it. And it's a really, really good example of how, you know, if a government is willing to actually make it work, it can incentivize things. And, you know, it's not like there's not a market for it. They've created a market yeah. for it and it's very willful government policy. So from that perspective, mm -hmm. um, Victoria, New South Wales are slowly sort of coming to that. And that right now Project Energy Connect is sort of going through a milestone where it's going to basically it's the South Australia, New South Wales interconnector. So once that's up and running, there's a lot of possibility to export renewables between South Australia, New South Wales and yeah. Victoria. So whenever there yeah. is a particular, for example, energy security issue in South Australia, when we don't have enough sun or whatever, we can import renewables from the other states. So things like mm -hmm. that. So I definitely do think that there's just so much potential for countries and, and even like other states here to adopt the South Australian model. So, so basically from what I heard, I think the biggest issues won't be related to the production of renewable energy but mm -hmm. it's more related to the storage of energy in terms of having a um, renewable energy storage, even in times where maybe there's no wind or there's no sunlight. So yeah. there's a need of, and also yeah. the second thing is related to the development of a, of a grid that connects states. So in order to meet other states needs, mm -hmm. you know, 
Yeah, correct. So um, you're right, but at the same time, I want to point out that, of course, production capacity is a thing. For example, you need to be able to have the resources in place to be able to be producing, you know, a significant majority of renewables, for example, to help power the electricity system or whatever. So production is part of it. But storage is obviously like up there with, you know, figuring out how to store energy, how to store it in a way that is, you know, very, very feasible. Um, doesn't, you know, cost all these people, like people want to transition, but if it's going to be like a massive expense for these people. And we're also talking about energy security becoming something that people who are generally, you know, below a particular income level, like they should be able to access these clean initiatives, which is why, you know, these kinds of government policies are really important. Like, for example, the switch for solar one is mainly for old concession holders. So essentially, it's people that are retired and just, you know, sort of on welfare. So essentially, they switch their concession over a few years to get those solar panels installed or whatever. And then there's like, you know, a pretty much an average reduction of 100 something dollars yearly on their bills, for example. And they're also, you know, like, um, yeah, it's also clean. So it's that. But just to clarify that earlier comment I made, what I was going to say is that South Australia last year became the first gigawatt scale grid in the world to meet more than 100% of its demand with just solar. That's what I was trying to say. I think this deserves another Joe Rogan style reaction of, oh my God, really? No way. Jamie, look that shit up. (laughs) Um, So is it, does it, so is South Australia, um, so they're ahead of Victoria in renewables. So it might sound like a dumb question, but I know very little about yeah. this. Okay, so in terms of yeah. renewables, this is, again, I might be wrong, but from the limited knowledge that I have, Tasmania is top, like top in Australia because yeah. they're, they're kind of ahead of South Australia even. So there's like a graph, a, a little diagram that I can share with you after this if you want to you know, use it or take a look, but it basically shows you the percentage of renewables in each state and the electricity price. So Tasmania is like 90% renewables, let's say, for example. So the electricity price is like the lowest in the country. So there's clearly a link there. But after Tasmania, it's South Australia. After South Australia, I want to say New South Wales, Victoria, like around that. And the worst, I think, would be Queensland, I want to say, because Queensland has a lot of coal and Queensland is well positioned. That's another thing. Like Queensland has a lot of mines and has a lot of coal. And that's something that they have to actually struggle with to fix. But South Australia luckily doesn't, we don't really have coal mines really. Hmm. And even the, like there's a couple of mines that are being expanded right now. But the whole idea is to mine enough copper to fuel the energy transition because you need copper for the windmills and you need copper for, you know, all the, you know, clean energy initiatives and technology that you need, essentially. So that way we don't even have that much coal to begin with. So we don't have to deal with that problem of clearing it up. And we are really well positioned with, you know, renewables like wind, hydro, solar. It's like, it's really good from that perspective. You know, obviously we got lucky, but yeah, well, Victoria and New South Wales are definitely behind South Australia. But it's like you've fully embraced a South Australian identity now, which I find very, oh, very no, sweet. Not really. I think <laughs> I think it's just like nine to five, this is kind of my job, is you yeah. know, reading up on this and you know, figuring out how to make this relevant to people scrolling on Instagram, for example, and how to make yeah. it relevant to voters or whatever. So it's just figuring that out. Obviously, I'm not involved in 
the you know actual election campaign or anything but i just i do the the social media for the minister's account so i manage that i develop content to talk about okay why does this project matter why should we care about this and obviously there's this overarching narrative of like we're doing a lot for like for the climate for the energy transition so from that perspective it sounds like i'm all settled here and i just love love it but it's it's more just like i just know a lot about it now to yeah. be able to make these you know yeah just talk about it basically i think people listening to this who are in the mir like this is kind of preaching to the choir but for those who like kind of aren't uh, absorbing politics and international politics on like a near daily basis people tend to forget that there's a difference between government and politicians mm. like i was talking with a friend of mine from high school about government because he just mm. he just really doesn't like uh the i guess his idea of government and it's uh, yeah people have this assumption that if you're working in the government you're a politician whereas mm -hmm. government's kind of just the other people that do all the things behind the scenes it's very interesting yeah. that you pointed that out because i learned that very early on here and a really good example to dem demonstrate that is government is basically run by a public servants and be politicians so that's how it works for example um when i started working there there was a very clear sort of explanation given to me so i i work in the minister's office minister's office has the minister it's got ministerial advisors and the chief of staff so it's those people that advise the minister on all the issues and all that's happening basically that's one side of it and the second side is the department so the department is just going to be there whether the minister gets reelected or not. So it's people that work in the department. They are completely, they're meant to be completely apolitical and they will, you know, they keep that separation really distinct. So I am a public servant in that obviously I'm supposed to be apolitical, but because I'm, I'm hired by the minister's office, like the minister obviously is my boss. It's also treading that line. So I am the liaison between the department and the minister's office. Yeah. So that's kind of how I understand it. And the minister is a politician and he's got very obvious, you know, motives, which is like to get reelected. That's, you know, that's the main one. And then the department's objectives are very different in that they support, you know, government policy that is in place at that point of time, for example. So, yeah, so ministers will come and go, but the department will stay there and they, their objectives are very different. And that's the easiest way to understand it. There's obviously a lot of overlap that happens but essentially yeah that's it okay i just want to point something out this is um derailing the podcast a little bit so the name of the south australian premier unless there's been like a, a rebellion in the past six months is uh stephen marshall correct yeah. and um i looked at a post that the u.s consulate melbourne made on instagram of um it was uh michael klein's klein's klein i don't remember if there's the, the s or not Sorry, Michael. Um, it was a photo of him standing with um, the South Australian Premier, except they, the, the social media person for the consulate tagged the wrong account. They tagged yeah. Marshall Stephen. And oh. it's a picture of when you go to the account, it's like this guy who has two photos and one of them is him with like a beer and a beer belly and this big grin on his face. Oh my God. <laughs> I haven't seen that. That would be good if you could link that to me at some point too. Cause um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, don't know about that. <laughs> I'll link it too. I don't think the US consulate has removed it. I'm tempted to just send them a message and advise them of it. But I also think it's funnier if we just keep yeah, it there. Yeah, de definitely, definitely. <laughs> kind of like when Joe Biden forgot Scott Morrison's name and he's like, thanks, the guy. 
under under there, you know. Oh, that's that yeah, was, under. Oh my god, that was the best. That was really cringe. Um, but yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Another thing as I well saw, is. Uh, oh, sorry. You, you go first, Marco. No, you go, Tom. I, I think a lot you of go. people assume that everyone in the Liberal Party is going to be like Scott Morrison. You know, oh, whereas no. there's, there's a lot of there's actually a lot of nice people in the Liberal Party, despite the fact that, you know, it's they their policies, in my opinion, can be quite destructive. I'm talking about the federal ones yeah. and New South Wales. Um, and yeah, people forget that there are those who, who joined that party with, I guess, genuinely good motives yeah, yeah. Um, versus no, that, whatever Scott yeah. Morrison is. Yeah, that's absolutely right, because, um, yeah, so obviously, like. I've been working a little bit with the ministerial advisors and stuff like that, the chief of staff or whatever. But it's basically the kind of vibe that I've gotten from all these conversations is that federal policy, it has almost like sometimes has a very little relevance to state policies. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's why, that's why I think that having that kind of perspective of, you know, the federal, not, I mean, not every liberal party, you know, person is scott morrison so that's very important scott morrison is really one of a kind i'd be i'd be devastated if there was more than one of him really to be honest but um yeah that is true but then again it just comes down to again like comes down to which industry you work in which state you work in essentially that's it yeah i wouldn't be surprised if there's like a few of him in like these like cloning tanks like the ones in um uh, the the last what was it the rise of skywalker the the 2019 star wars movie where they have like the 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 bad guy from two movies ago like in these like clones of him in these tanks in like green liquid yeah i can imagine scott morrison being like suspended yeah. in green liquid and it's like oh there's a few of him yeah yeah, yeah. I, I mean my best bet is like a lot of the at least in south australia a lot of the ministers that I'm, i've been observing and you know sort of getting to know the work of yeah. He's way more capable than Scott Morrison. <laughs> yeah. I do question, though, whether Scott Morrison is, like, actually quite intelligent, but he just puts on this facade, and the reason his government seems to be kind of stupid and dumb is simply because they're just doing things because of their, uh, like, their, the lobbyists, what the lobbies are telling them to do rather than that they're just bad, if that makes sense. Like, they're intentionally, yeah. they're intentionally being worse. Yeah, yeah, I just want to find out, really. Yeah. Just want to point out that Empyro is apolitical, although, I mean, I would vote for the Labour Party as an individual. Empyro mm -hmm. would not say to vote for anyone. Mm. I hope, Hopefully I worded that correctly enough so I, we don't get sued. Um, cool. Uh, what... in trouble. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hopefully not. Um, now, one, one thing that everyone is probably quite interested to know um is how you got that job i think anyone these days is interested to know how anyone got any job uh, yeah. because oh. jobs tend to be kind of scarce yeah. but I'm so what was the process going from the mir and uh whatever work you'd done sort of previously yeah. yeah so um yeah so just to set i guess the background i'll keep this as short as possible i obviously was completing my mir and i'd spoken to you know you know natalie like for example she graduated like semester earlier just spoken to people that have done that and gave me a little bit of advice and they were like start looking four or five months even before because you know just figuring out the algorithm of the job market is hard enough like it mm -hmm. takes a few months so i'd applied um 
yeah, because because I had a part-time job with the Energy Efficiency Council, at least I wasn't going from hospital or retail to some something like that. Yeah. So that was there. And uh, from that perspective, it was okay. But I applied to 55, 56 jobs, and then I got like four interviews. So that was what I was dealing with. But that's because the majority of the jobs that I applied for were interstate. And we're talking about a time when border restrictions were just, we were like 20% fully vaxxed back then. In yeah. Indonesia. So it was really impossible to get a job interstate, let alone in government. And also as a person of color that's not a citizen, obviously, it's like, it was like, forget about it. But I ended up applying for this job in June. I did the interview and I was like, I'm not going to get it. Because there were just so many, like, gray areas. Like, when when would I be able to get a border permit to actually relocate? When would they need the candidate to start? And, you know, and I was also in between visas back then, like going from a student to a work visa. So there was just so much that was not going for me from that perspective. So I applied to quite a few and then um, I finally decided to move anyway. Like I was like, okay, I'm going to do it. I got my border permit and I was like, all right, I'm just going to move and I'll just have to figure out the job later. But after my, I was like, okay, let me do my 14 day quarantine and at least then I can go and, you know, start networking. So I'll be in the state. So it'll at least make it easier for me to get like, you know, my application in because the minute they see Victoria, they're just going to throw it out, you know, like on your CV, like your address. Yeah. So anyways, I came here and on the third day of the quarantine, I ended up getting this job. So I, I applied in June and it took them like two months because a government, it's a lot of approvals and this and that. Got back to me and they're like, yep, you have the job. When can you start? And so it was perfectly aligned because just as I was finishing my 14 day quarantine, just as I got out, I started this job. So how the process was, was that obviously I applied. And I had applied to 40 plus government jobs by then and I got two interviews. So that's kind of how hard it is it it is as a grad, you know, sort of transitioning thing. Another thing is it wasn't a grad job. So I don't know, like I know grad jobs are really tough, but this is tough in a different sense in that, you know, you have to bank on your experience and it, there's not going to be that much training, if that makes sense, because it's not yeah. a graduate job. So yeah, so it's, um, I'm on ASO4, that's my like, that's this seniority level, but yeah, so that's kind of where you, you know, you kind of begin off with ASO1, I want to say, but yeah. Um, yeah, depending on your experience, but yeah, so I ended up getting that job and funny thing is that I was getting so many rejections and then right after I took this job on, like I said, okay to the job, I ended up getting three other jobs, like out of nowhere. So it sounds like you're a guy on Tinder. <laughs> no, it's it's interesting because I'll tell you why. It's because I literally wrote to all the people that I applied to, like all the jobs saying, oh, I'm actually in Adelaide. And they're like, oh, cool. Great. I'll give you an interview now kind of thing. We interrupt this podcast with an ad. Come on back down at Tom's Tractors. I won the legal case with me wife so I can keep the farm. Tom's Tractors is now offering a free pizza deal with every tractor. If you come to get a tractor, Marco's going to cook you a pizza. Isn't that right, Marco? Come to get a bullshit tractor and they'll get you a pizza. Yeah. Come to Tom's Tractors today. God, please help us. So, but anyway, uh, that's how I got the job. And there was one thing about these kinds of jobs is that there is a lot of induction to do. Like my whole first week, like all five days, was just doing anti-corruption, maladministration, all these like, you know, induction training thing 
like what what is the ICAC this and that and I was like on a computer and I would just get the answers wrong all the time so I would have to print the right answers out and then just copy them because you know I'm not going to get all the answers right anyway but yeah just things like that so yeah that's how I so you first decided to move to SA and then from there to look for a job right yeah that was why did you decide to I applied for that this job in June when I was still in Melbourne right so I did the interview mm. remotely from Melbourne and it was fine. It's just that it happens that by the time I'd moved, they gave me a job, but that usually never happens. Like life doesn't mm. like just work that way, but yeah. And why did you decide to move? It's a good question. Uh, really a couple of reasons. One is- Because Victoria sucks. No, I'm kidding. I love Victoria. No, I love Victoria. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mainly for like, you know, I wanted the potential to be able to follow a pathway to permanent residency in the future if I chose it. Uh, so I was like, oh, so it's just like really about keeping my options open more than anything. But in Victoria, the thing is that it's impossible. That's basically it. Like for the next few years, only doctors and nurses are going to be getting permanent residency. I've heard this, this before that it's easier in South Australia than Victoria. Yeah, it's easier in South Australia because South Australia is like a small state and it's it's growing. So to accommodate those growing labor, you know, shortages or something, there's just more, yeah. you know, a likelihood for it to be a stable pathway here than a state like Victoria, which is already pretty saturated. So that was one of the reasons. Second reason was, you know, the job really, because, you know, if you get a government job, and you tick that off your box, it's just so much easier to go work in another department or work for another minister or whatever, things like that. So I, because I got this, I was like, of course, I'm going to move. And of course, I'm going to do that. That was the second thing. And the third thing was like, really like lockdown was just, it just never ended. <sighs> so it was also like, oh, let me see, you know, what happens when I'm not in lockdown kind of thing. But of course, like if I don't really like South Australia or whatever. I can always move back, but yeah, those are the Yeah, that's right. Also, it's a way to gain experience. So you might gain experience over there and then come back here and it will be easier to find a job. Yeah, also. maybe Dan and so, come PM and then I can work. Yeah. In the <laughs> oh, that's yes. right. And um, so it's that would be pretty good, actually, not going to lie. Yeah. <laughs> Australia would be so much better if he was if he was the PM. Oh, yeah, I, f- I still find it funny that like he's referred to as dictator Dan, whereas like when you look at the legislation that's come through um, under the the federal liberals since 2013, like a lot of it has been uh, a little bit worrying when it comes to things like um, uh, well, like identify and disrupt and all those sorts of those bills to do with um, you know accessing yeah. personal data of citizens. Yeah. Yeah, dictator Scomo. Sorry, yeah, <laughs> Empire is apolitical. <laughs> yeah. So, and how long is your contract? Is it like, is it going to? How long are you staying for mm. the Department of Mining and Energy? Yeah. Do you know? Or My contract your... ends in March because that's when the elections are. So. Okay. Basically, most of the people that are on short-term contracts in the office, where our situation is the same in that, you know, if they win the elections, they've got a job. If they don't win, then we don't have a job and we just move on to the next thing. You know what I mean? So from that perspective, it's kind of very uncertain at the moment. But, the, you know, it really depends. Like with me, my job, like, you know, it's, it's a very newly created role and it's really me making the role what, what I think it should be. 
so it's been a very like work in progress and you know you never have the same day pretty much every other day so yeah it really depends like if they come back to power i guess then they will probably end up continuing most of the roles so then it'll just be like an extended contract but things with like around the election time are just generally very uncertain in all departments so yeah right now it's until march but yeah it really depends but i don't think it should be i'm not too stressed about finding a job after march only because like i've done this so i'll have it on my cv and it'll just make it that much easier to be able to get the next one so it's just really yeah and also those jobs yeah. and also probably there won't be any hopefully there won't be any lockdown so you don't have this problem of you know moving yeah. to other states so <laughs> yeah yeah if you want to give some advices to new people like us you know that want to look for a job now so yeah. what would you recommend which tips would you give uh, us let's go with the top three things i learned from my search one is just you know strike the right balance between applying the hell out of jobs and not wasting time applying to things that you know you completely don't have a shot for like you need to strike a good balance yeah. Yes, it's good to apply for a lot of things, but you know, every application you're going to be putting in one or two hours of work because you're not going to half ass, yes. you know? So it's a waste of time if you just apply to stuff that you obviously know you don't have a shot for. Like for example, a few people that, you know, in our where in my position international students used to apply to all these jobs which literally said, you know, you need to be able to pass, you know, ADF security and you need to be a citizen and they would still apply and they'd be like, "Oh, maybe they'll change their mind." That's a waste of time. No, it's, they're, not yeah. gonna, they're not even going to look at your application the minute that they know you're not a citizen, if that makes sense. But the second thing that I learned was um, it takes at least 20 to 30 cover letter cycles for you to figure out the best cover letter. Mm. So I would say every two or three cover letters that you write, I know that all the info is going to be the same, but try to just you know have five to six different templates where you draw on different, very different skills. You know what I mean? So then you'll find you'll have like this equation of the perfect cover letter, which, you know, you can just use for whatever job. So that really helped me. And the third is definitely, you know, it's I know it's hard to practice interview skills, but you keep talking to people about how to perform well in an interview, because I in my whole experience, I found that I was really well prepared for the most part. But then it's literally being in that moment and you have no control over what they're going to ask you. And the only control that you have is how you respond to it. So I found that no matter how much prep I did before, it took me at least five or six interviews, actual interviews to give me that practice to, you know, think on my feet from the seventh interview. So my first six interviews were really bad. So yeah, just, yeah, being able to figure out the interview part and just make sure that you can preempt as much as you can. That's really good. So what was it like? kind of cracking into this job market as someone coming from India? It was, uh, it was pretty tough because of obviously these external circumstances like COVID and stuff like that. But from the perspective of here in South Australia, I can only speak of with, from my experience, but here in Adelaide, it's a very small community and it is quite white. Like it is obviously, you know, yes, it's multicultural, but I wouldn't say it is to the extent Melbourne is, for example. It's a little, little pasty, bit pasty. Yeah. Yeah. Just a bit. Um, but yeah, but it was a lot of, you know, 
explaining not explaining but also like de demonstrating that my english skills are really good blah, blah, blah. so it's like demonstrating things that you already know are true of yourself but you just somehow have to keep doing that so yeah the one tip that i have is it'll it's probably twice as hard as a non you know white or whatever for the lack of a better term non-australian whatever that is um the non-local i would say non-local to get a job but um yeah that is just how it is which is why you need to go that extra mile and do that extra networking and really really demonstrate how well spoken you are and how confident you are but once you get yourself past that bit it becomes easier so it's just and it's really not i wouldn't say it's like a racist or anything like mm -hmm. that i would just say that people only know um you know how to respond from their experience and if their experience is going to be really really tiny um, in that they've only like I'm the only non-white person in my team for example so if that's been their only experience then then you can understand why they would respond a particular way so just try not to take it personally it's not really about you it's just them not being exposed to different people for example yeah so you just guide them through that in the most you know what's the word graceful way possible and that's it that's basically how you get into that hack yeah I it's think a very productive way of looking at it yeah yeah and I think one of the, as you said before, one of the most difficult thing is to literally break the ice. Why once you get into mm. the system, you know, mm. you are already, you know, like, so this is the yeah. most difficult thing, especially for, you know, like, as you said, cover letter interviews, you know, and but once you are in, you are in, I think, you know. Like, yeah, correct. Cool. Well, before we wrap this up or move on to anything else, uh, we owe it to our listeners, all five of them, to explain what's going on with Wendy being a pineapple. Now, I did a bit of research and I discovered a, a very uh, unusual and um, quite intense phenomenon referred to as a Portuguese pineapple syndrome, which basically means that anyone who has any connection to Portuguese culture via being Portuguese or colonialism, um, they they have a high chance that at some point in their life, they will turn into a pineapple. They will feel <laughs> an intense urge to turn into a pineapple. And it seems that Wendy, after stepping down as a pyro president, felt that urge, knew that the time was right and just went for it. She's also Macau Chinese. So there's the connection. Macau uh, was a Portuguese colony. So yeah, that's why Wendy's a pineapple. We just cracked it. I totally didn't just think yeah. of that a few seconds yeah. ago. I had no idea when you actually messaged me that I was like, what does, what does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> it's just a really long running in joke on the podcast. Um, yeah. Yeah. We need to find out why she turned into a pineapple, you know? Oh shit. She turned into a watermelon now. Oh fuck. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Voice of Empyro. Hope you have a good uh, time between the next episode. And uh, I'm bad at outros. Goodbye, everyone. Thanks for having me. Goodbye. Goodbye.